Good morning. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Today is a game day, but the question is, how big a game day is it? It's a game day for BYU. They're going to face the University of San Diego. You can watch the game tonight. K-Jazz, 7 o'clock. That's the college hoops, the pro hoops. The Jazz are scheduled to play the Detroit Pistons tonight, 8 o'clock. But that game is a big old gigantic maybe as we sit here this morning. The Pistons were supposed to play Denver last night, which is kind of a, a big game because uh, Plumlee and Grant, you know, left the Nuggets in the offseason, went to the Pistons, so they're coming back to Denver, and everybody's fired up for that. And the Pistons are watching film before the game, and then news comes back of a positive and or inconclusive test. Not exactly what was going, clear what was going on there. There'll have to be more testing, but the game wasn't played. So... Put that one in your back pocket. Maybe it'll get, uh, you know, rescheduled later. Uh, but now the question is, will there be a positive test, an inconclusive test, or a negative test, and will the Jazz be able to play tonight? You know, if it's a positive, then there's contact tracing. And despite the league's best efforts, players still want to see each other and see friends and former teammates. So Pistons were hugging Nuggets before the game. And then, of course, all this happened. So it's all messed up. Who the heck knows? Uh, we'll just stay tuned. Maybe we'll hear something during the show this morning. Maybe it'll be during Hans and Scotty's show later in the day. But we'll just wait Wait word on whether that Jazz-Piston game is really going to happen tonight. Uh, I think it would be best for the Jazz if it does. They're coming off that loss in Denver. Time to bounce back. We thought the Pistons were going to back-to-back. Now, of course, they're not. But they're still 5-15. Five, five wins, 15 losses. And the Jazz just have to win this game. You're at home. No excuses. Get it done. And, of course, the Pistons are bad, but when the Lakers were missing Anthony Davis, they went to Detroit and got beat by 15. And that was just Thursday night. So, you know, it's all cliche. Uh, those guys have NBA players, too. But, you know, they actually do. So, if they hit some shots, they can take you down. Jazz need to get a win under the belt if possible. And then they'll hit the road for a, a quick three-game Eastern trip. And they're going through Atlanta, who lost to the Lakers last night. And that would be Thursday. And then Friday, they'll see uh, Gordon Hayward and Charlotte and wrap up in Indiana. And, and all those teams have kind of been bouncing around 500. Charlotte a little over, Indiana a little uh, – Charlotte under, Indiana a little over, and Atlanta pretty much right at it. Um, so – good road trip but hopefully they'll get a game in tonight we'll just have to see how that plays out all right we're going to take a break uh when we come back we got a couple things to uh to get to we've got uh steve cleveland and ken pomeroy um ken pomeroy talking uh, college hoops with pk and i and had some interesting stuff to get to as always the prerequisite uh you know how, how do the Cougars look? How do the Aggies look? He's pretty optimistic on them. He'll explain why. And uh, seeing those leagues, probably two-bid leagues. Mountain West might end up being a three-bid league. We'll have to see how it plays out if they beat each other up. And then, of course, looking down the road, uh, the big issue for colleges, are conference tournaments going to happen? Um, on the pro side, yes, because there's TV contracts and they want the money. On the con side, uh, hey, you could, uh, you could have a team going to the NCAA tournament get some positives and have to be quarantined and not be able to go to the tournament. You could cost your conference money. Um, you know, there, there are probably teams, just in, like in football, that want the thing to be over, just, be, just to end the season already. You know, there are both teams, they're just exhausted. It's been a total up and down, games getting canceled, rescheduled, and they've just had enough. Um, there were teams that didn't want to go to bowl games, obviously, and the Utes didn't. So we'll have to see how this plays out with conference tournaments. We'll talk with Ken Pomeroy about that next. Stay with us. 
Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK in the morning brought to you by Mark Miller Subaru. Time to welcome in Ken Pomeroy, owner of KenPom.com, college basketball numbers guru. Ken, welcome back to the show. Good morning, fellas. Nice to, nice to chat with you again. I'm curious, before we get to any specific teams, especially a couple in state, uh, the scheduling is so weird this year. The non-conference games are obviously very limited. Do you have enough info and enough data that you're confident in the model you put together? Because obviously, over the years... Maybe actually we're trending towards over the decades. The um, the selection committee had confidence in your model. They used it, and they used it again, and they used it again, and they used it again. But how confident are you this year without all those non-conference games? Well, not as confident. It's still uh, it's still pretty solid. You always want more data. Um, you know, I, I actually monitor this when I uh, I'm making predictions every day for scores for all these games, so I can see the. Uh, the error in each prediction and the errors are a little higher this year. Normally, normally the error would be like 8.8 points per game or something like that. And this year so far, it's like 9.3, 9.4. So, so there is a noticeable difference from a statistical standpoint. Um, but that said, it's not huge and it's not something that the casual observer is going to notice without necessarily diving into the data. So, uh, so overall, I think it's, I think the model's pretty solid. You know, it could be better, but uh, but it's it's good enough for what we're dealing with. This is impossible, I think, to ask. But how much slack do you think the committee is going to give teams who've had guys in and out because of this COVID thing? Yeah, it's funny. We haven't heard a lot about those kind of things. Usually, it's. Uh, there's one or two teams that, for you know, in a normal year, who has a key injury and it's a pretty big deal. And there's always this point made that you know, well, you know, once once this guy comes back, like that's how the team will be judged. And I think that effect has always been overblown to some extent. Um, it's really hard to manage all that information, and I think that is the crux of the situation this year. Is that you know, guys, uh, you know, obviously for the most part, teams that have a COVID issue, they just shut down. Uh, so it's a little different than football, but there are cases where uh, teams uh, are able to persevere, especially in the power conferences where they might have more sophisticated contact tracing. They're able to just sit a guy or two for three or four games, and then everything's back to normal. Um, but there haven't been a ton of those cases. But I, I guess the bottom line is like it's so it, it's just so hard to manage all that information if you're the committee. That um, I'm not going to say they're going to ignore it, but. Only in the most like key situations, I think, is that going to come into play. So BYU, you like them? You think they're a bubble team? How is this season progressing for the Cougars? Well, uh, I think yeah, I think right now it looks like they're still in good shape. Uh, you know, it, it, this is not a, a you know 
it's not the same BYU team from last year. <laughs> they don't have anybody on the team that is as good as a Yoli Child or TJ Hawes or, or Jake Toulson. You know, they don't have guys that can make plays when, when the defense breaks down, and that's really reflected in their stats. Like, there's, they're a pretty boring team statistically. They don't do anything great. Uh, they do enough things well that uh, I think they're clearly the second-best team in that league, and that's really the key is that uh, the WCC – probably a two-bid league and you know it's it's that second bid is BYU's for the taking and obviously they've struggled uh of late losing to Pepperdine and nearly losing to Pacific that would have maybe changed my tune a little bit if they didn't pull out the Pacific game which by the way why are they called the University of the Pacific I mean the campus isn't even close to the Pacific Ocean but there's a delta and a river, and Stockton has a port, and yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's just odd that they would play a game at Pepperdine, a campus that has a view of the Pacific Ocean, and then uh, they play a team called the University of the Pacific, and it would be like the University of Utah being called like Bear Lake University or something. <laughs> or this NBA team called the Jazz in Utah. <laughs> Craziest thing I've ever heard of. Point what, taken, are you, point taken. what are you hearing as far as conference tournaments? Because why bother? So that's the other thing that I feel like could go either way with respect to BYU's fate is that, uh, you know, you have a team like Arizona, they've, they would get into the tournament, but they've self-imposed the postseason ban. So that kind of opens up another spot for an at-large team. And if you don't play conference tournaments, then that also opens up spots because, you know, potential at-large teams and other conferences. The Missouri Valley, for instance, has maybe two at-large teams in Drake and, and Loyola Chicago. And if they played their tournament, obviously there would there'd be the possibility that both of those teams would gobble up at-large bids because a third team would win the, the conference tournament and that would squeeze the bubble a little bit. So to get to your question, like, it, yeah, I – I can't believe that a lot of conference tournaments are going to get played. It doesn't, it doesn't make very much sense right now. You know, maybe if, they, if we had another month of the season, there would, uh, you know, the, there would be less of the, the virus going around, fewer infections, and, and you could have a better chance of pulling off these tournaments without a team getting knocked out or three teams getting knocked out by the, the virus. But, um, it, yeah, it's hard, to, it's hard to imagine that happening. But every conference right now, like no conference is canceling their conference tournament yet. No. They're all talking about playing it. Some conferences have gone so far as to move their conference tournaments from a you know a neutral site venue to a campus venue, um, try to control the environment a little bit more. We'll see what happens, but uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, we've obviously heard grumblings, pretty loud grumblings, that you know Gonzaga is like, hey, why are we yeah. going to go to a place for? Well, they just have to go to, to the WCC tournament for two days. It's still, you know, go go down there for three nights or whatever. Why are we going to go there and expose ourselves to four or five different teams and other yahoos at the, you know, the, the team hotel and possibly, you know, uh, get ourselves in, in, a, in a bad situation for uh, an event that means nothing to us? Like that is, uh, you know, another issue that's coming along. So it's going to be fascinating to see, but I cannot. I cannot imagine most of these conference tournaments are going to get played. It just doesn't make any sense. 
Well, to me, that aside of looking at each, instead of looking at each individual conference, inside a conference, there's at least two groups of team, and then in the Power Fives and with Gonzaga, you know, there can be a third group. You've got one group of teams that's bad and just wants the season to be over. It's been exhausting. They're worn out. They're not going anywhere. What does this matter? Really, it's what we saw from college football teams that said, yeah, thanks for the bowl invite, but no thanks. We're done. So there's that group. Um, there's a middle group, and it might be the top of some leagues, where it's like, well, we got to go to the conference tournament because that's our only path to the NCAAs. And then there's a group of teams that looks at KenPalm.com and says, we know we're in. We don't, what's the point? There's no point to this. So I'm wondering if a league that's got 12 or 14 teams might have like six teams that want to get, want to play. <laughs> and then either at the top or bottom of the league, teams are like, oh, this doesn't make any sense at all. Right. And the situation you get into is that if you go forward with those six teams, uh, you're going to be uh, assuming the conference tournament is still, uh, is, you know, the path of getting an automatic bid and crowning the conference champion. You obviously are going to have six or seven conferences that are crowning teams that otherwise wouldn't get in the tournament. And uh, that creates an interesting situation. The NCAA is supposed to be formulating some sort of policy on this. And we're kind of waiting uh, with bated breath here. Hopefully in the next week or two, we'll, we'll get some information on that. You know, will they, say that if you have a conference tournament, you know, you're required to play in that if you want to play in the NCAA tournament. Uh, that seems like the, like in a normal year, that would make total sense. And the fairest thing to do, possibly a little heavy-handed this year, and that will, you know, if you do implement that policy, that will convince, uh, I think, a lot of conferences to not hold their conference tournament and just, you know, send the regular season champ, which... Uh, We'll see what happens. It's going to be. It will be kind of interesting how this plays out. Well, hypothetically, using Gonzaga as his example, right? The the competition they're going to face the rest of the way, they should win the rest of their games. It'll be a major upset. Maybe possibly BYU at the end of the season in the Marriott Center, but the Marriott Center isn't going to have twenty thousand people screaming and yelling like they did last year, and so it's going to be just a fraction so the environment's not going to be near the same so i suspect that gonzaga's going to win that and then if gonzaga says hey we're not going down to vegas because as you said you know who knows and we could get contact tracing and the next thing you know we got two or three guys who can't play in the ncaa tournament and we're going to blow our number one seed and this is this is our greatest chance to not just get to the final four and win it all uh suppose they just say no we're not going to do it I mean, what in the world is the WCC going to do? Because they don't want to do anything that's going to offend Gonzaga because Gonzaga's already been threatening to move and they changed all the rules. They've made major accommodations for Gonzaga and probably justifiably so. So if that situation comes up, would these conferences have a tournament without some teams playing? I mean, I, I, I can't see that either. Yeah, it just doesn't seem fair that, like... You're setting a, a, pretty, a bad precedent there. Uh, you know, the term bid collusion comes to mind where, you know, you're setting a precedent now where, hey, that's obviously it's good for the league. Like, if they can get away with that, if Gonzaga just decides to sit and they're able to still go to the tournament as their one seed, and now you're, you know, going to guarantee yourself to be a two-bid league. And, heck, let's just say somehow BYU puts them in position to be pretty safe. Like, they probably can't get to that spot now if they want out and – 
they went out and beat Gonzaga in the finale, they'd be there. But if they went out and lost to Gonzaga, they'd be pretty safe, but they'd still probably want to play in the conference tournament. Um, but hypothetically, let's just say BYU was in that spot. You know, so you had two teams that, that were safe. Like, they could both sit, and then, you know, San Francisco wins the conference tournament. Now you, now you just, you know, got a three-bid league there because a couple teams decided to sit. It just doesn't. Yeah, they're they're gonna the phone's gonna ring because ESPN's gonna be on the other line saying we're not paying you guys to get a conference final of Pepperdine versus Pacific. Pacific doesn't even sit on the ocean. Give us Gonzaga. Exactly. Give us Gonzaga. Yeah, that would be that would be false advertising. <laughs> exactly. But but you're exactly right. Yeah, and that's I mean that's and that's the reason you know on the flip side that's the reason teams are their conferences are trying to have these conference tournaments. If you're the Ohio Valley, like you get one date on ESPN in prime time of year and uh, that's your conference tournament championship. So you can understand why teams are pushing or conferences are pushing forward on this. That's kind of the, the driving force behind playing the season is that they are trying to, you know, obviously recruit uh, tournament money, but you know, NCAA tournament money, but also uh, conference tournament money as well. So I'm wondering what your research has shown with very few, if any, fans in these stands. Because you look at, I was looking through the box scores of uh, some Pac-12 on Saturday night, and I saw that Stanford's playing at Tempe, and they outshoot the Sun Devils by like 3-1 to one in the free throw line. Utah goes over to Colorado, and same situation, 2 plus to three in terms of free throws. I mean, rarely did you ever see that for a home team to be outshot by that many free throws. I'm wondering if you've delved into that and seen how much of a difference that has made with few, if any, fans in terms of the free throw shooting because we normally don't see that discrepancy to the advantage of the visiting team. Yeah, I looked into this uh, about a month ago, PK, and uh, found that so normally uh, home teams get roughly two more calls a game than road teams, which is not huge, but that is really the, the driver of, of home court advantage. You know, you turn those into free throws and you, you get your, your three points or so of home court advantage. And uh, this year it has been uh, about a half of a call, half of a foul more per game uh, for the home team. Um, I mean, overall, there's still there's definitely still home court advantage. Like in conference play, home teams have won 57 percent of the time across the country, which doesn't sound overwhelming. But you got to remember that you know every time Gonzaga is playing at home, obviously they're playing it on the road as well and, and winning those games. So good teams still win road games. But I guess for a point of reference, you know, last four seasons teams uh, have won 60 percent of their conference games at home. So. Uh, so it is down this year. You look at point differential. Normally it's between three and three and a half. And this year it's yeah, a little bit less than two and a half. So, uh, so it's there. So home court is still there. I think people, you know, they kind of expect right now there to not be any home court advantage. And when you see Kansas, you know, kind of repeatedly struggling, losing at home and Duke's obviously lost multiple times at home and you see those things. And, it, you know, I think we're kind of, we have rabbit ears for those kind of events, and, and we attribute that to having no fans. And no question, like, the, it'd be harder to win in those places if they had fans. But but it's still hard to win on the road just because you're not familiar with the rims. You're not familiar with the court. And travel this year has been a little more difficult for some teams. Fewer plane rides, more bus rides. I don't know what goes on with the testing on 
on game day and things like that. But obviously the routines are a little bit different. Fewer, you know, practices allowed in a road venue. So there's still some factors there that, that make for a decent home court advantage. It's just the most fun of all those factors is the fans. And that's obviously uh, missing. Ken Pomeroy, KenPom.com joining us. So you think BYU's in pretty good shape. What do you think about Utah State and the Mountain West? Are they in good shape for the NCAA tourney? They're in pretty good shape as well. The Mountain West actually is kind of shook out as, uh, um, you know, uh, I think it's like kind of ideal the way it's set up where there are uh, at least three teams that are just completely awful in the league. So, you know, the problem has always been with uh, BYU is that there, you know, there are a lot of teams in the WCC that people haven't heard of and that aren't going to be a threat to make the NCAA tournament, but they're also good enough to beat you on the road. Uh, the Mountain West isn't quite that way. I mean, New Mexico and, and San Jose State are just, you know, really bad this year, and they don't even have a home arena for that matter. Uh, Air Force is really bad. Um, and even the middle of the league, like Wyoming and, and UNLV, are not particularly good. So, um, you know, those are almost automatic wins, not quite. Utah State did lose the UNLV once, but otherwise it handled those other teams. So it's just a matter of handling business against, you know, the upper half of the league now, which is the schedule that, that the Aggies are, are embarking on. And, you know, they have a big series with Boise State in a couple of weeks at Boise. Probably need to split that to uh, to feel really good about themselves and, again, take care of business in the the rest of their schedule and uh you know if they could finish up league play 16 and 4 in the mountain west i think that'll be good enough to get in there won't be a unlike byu who has uh, you know some quality wins in the non-conference uh, utah state doesn't have really anything in the non-conference but uh, they do have a sweep san diego state and if they had a split against boise state you know to go with the split against colorado state those are really your your four your big four of the mountain west um you know, if you're four and two against the other three teams, uh, you're gonna have a really strong case, I think, to get in that large bid. How do you think being everything being in Indiana is going to affect things when we get to the tournament? Uh, I don't know. I think uh, hopefully it makes for for better basketball. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what other impact it will have. I mean, there's gonna be less travel. The schedule will be slightly more condensed not going to be a, a pure bubble like the NBA, but um, there will, protocols will be pretty strict. There's obviously a lot on the line here for the NCAA. If a team uh, has an issue in the middle of the tournament, that is going to be a major story, but it sounds like they are going to do everything in their technological power to uh, isolate people and make it so that if somebody does get infected, that the team does not have to shut down. Um, but other than that, I, you know, I don't know that it's, uh, there, there are a lot of aspects of the season that I think you could put qualifiers on or whatever, you know, Gonzaga going un, unbeaten would be a great story. You know, the schedule is a little bit shorter than usual, so maybe they wouldn't get the full, uh, credit that they would get in a normal year, but the tournament itself, I think is going to be pretty similar to any other tournament. I was thinking, you know, again, not many fans and, and other issues like that. You know, you're playing in these small venues, but uh, as far as the, the play on the court, I think it's, it's going to be just as good as uh, any other previous season. 
Well, Ken, as always, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on and uh, talking a little college hoops with us. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. There's Ken Pomeroy from KenPom.com. You can check out all the numbers on his website, KenPom.com. When we come back, Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK want to remind you Valentine's Day is not far away. Flowers make the perfect gift. Jimmy's Flowers, a longtime partner with Zone can make it easy for you. Just visit them at jimmysflowers.com. Valentine's Day is on a Sunday this year. You need to plan ahead. Jimmy's Flowers at jimmysflowers.com. Time to welcome in Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. Steve, good morning. Good morning, guys. Steve, you ever mess up Valentine's Day? You know, coaching in the middle of an intense season, ever get away from you? Uh, yeah, probably did. <laughs> <laughs> you just so I, guilty. I, I have... Uh... Uh, a, a, a great wife who uh, doesn't make a big deal out of holidays, doesn't have great expectations, and and uh, I'm usually the one that you know it's my birthday and I'm expecting something. And it was your birthday yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not that bad, but it, it she she definitely is not one that feels that uh, we have to do a lot of things. You know, it's kind of like you guys growing up. I mean, I don't know about you and your families, but I remember having two birthday parties in my life. When I turned 16, and then my wife had one for me when I was 40. I mean, I don't know if either one of you have grandchildren, but it's like a full-on, full-blown-out birthday party for the grandkids every year. I mean, it's kind of like, what can we do this year to outdo what we did last year, you know? (laughs) And uh, it's crazy. I mean, I I tell my kids, I go, what are you doing? You know, they're spending uh, so much money, first of all, and number two, you're creating an expectation that uh, I don't think it's healthy, but that's just the nature of it in this day and age, man. Families are taking their kids and doing special things every time there's a birthday, man. So, uh, no, I am uh, I live with a, a good woman who understands that I was coaching, and we'll, we'll find the times to go out and, and celebrate, but oftentimes you're on the road, you're playing a game, you know, it's not happening, but... Uh, yeah, I, I've got a good woman, and uh, she, she doesn't get too excited about those things. I know some guys' wives do, and you got you got to be good. But some, once in a while, I have not necessarily forgotten, but just never got to it. So it's sort of like bombastic statements when it comes to sports. You've known that. You've known me for about 25 years now. And one of the things that I think I'm, I'm able to say with some level of credence is when you take all aspects – of offense in basketball for center, this Jokic kid might be, and I believe is the best. When you consider everything now, in you know back in the early days or just in the eighties, nineties, centers, you know, a lot of them weren't outside shooting threes, didn't average over eight assists. When you factor in everything, to me, Jokic is that guy. He's just unbelievable. What is your response? You know, I, I I really when you start looking at the all the things that he does now, I mean, you look at a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 
who who had the ability to to do special things or Will Chamberlain, you know, you some of these iconic centers. But I have never seen anybody that was so gifted offensively with the ball, decision making, shooting the ball, you know, whether it was around the basket. Uh, he has got so many different ways to get to the basket, and he's and he does it. He does it with great poise. He, he does it at his pace and his time. And I can't imagine playing this guy and not feeling like you have to double him every time he touches the ball, even at the high post sometimes. And so I, I completely agree. And I've heard I've heard comments recently that you could make an argument that he's the greatest offensive post player ever in terms of the full breadth of what he can do and what he has done. Um you know, I, I don't know if if I would completely agree with that, but I, I would say you could certainly make a really good argument. And uh, you know, good post, great post players. You know, they're never in a hurry, never, ever, ever in a hurry. And you know, and he runs. I mean, he's in a system that's kind of a Princeton type system, where there are back cuts and curl cuts and and uh, dribble drives and, and and I mean, he 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 fits in perfect. I remember playing Air Force, and you remember back in the mid-90s, early, excuse me, in the, uh, yeah, in the, in the early 90s, mid-90s, yeah. Air Force wasn't really good. I mean, they, they just didn't have a system, and once they adopted that Princeton system, and they took the intelligence and the work ethic, and, 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 and again, mind you, they did recruit some good athletes, but never really had great size, but guys that could Post and you know I, mean, I, re- I remember that one of the most effective things they did was use their guys as post players and in odd situations and and the the Princeton offense obviously is well known but it was something that fit for them and they, and they all had that skill set and when I watched Jokic you could see him playing for Princeton <laughs> you know I mean he, he's a guy that understands reads he's never in a hurry. Uh, and, you know, he's got enough low post moves. He can put two, three, or four of you at a time. Eventually, a guy leaves his feet, he's vulnerable, he scores or gets fouled. So it's it's fun to watch him. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I mean, think defensively, he's, he's a little bit limited in some areas, and, but he is more sneaky athletic than you think. The thing I loved about the other night, I read something a day or two ago, and it was from his teammates that said, he didn't want to go back in a game and score 50. I mean, that tells you about the humility of this guy, his love of the game. And, you know, a lot of guys got put me back in or whatever. I want to get 50 because that's that's kind of a milestone, his first 50-point game. I mean, maybe he's had a 50-point game. I don't know. But that's told me a lot about the person as well. So, yeah, he, he's fun to watch. Steve Cleveland joining us. Uh, so he's fun to watch, but he's hard to stop. And the Jazz, PK wants to put away last year, and I don't. The Jazz have lost several high-scoring games to them. Murray was going off in the playoffs. Jokic here. And the Jazz can shoot their 43s, and they can shoot 40%. And that's the plan on how they're supposed to win. But it doesn't seem to work against the Nuggets. Nuggets have beaten them four times in the bubble and now here in this game. So how worried should Jazz fans be? Or should they just say, hey, they'd won 11 in a row and they lost one? Big deal. Or because it's the Nuggets and it fits a trend, is it a bigger deal? Well, you, you guys are around them all the time, the team, and you also have watched a lot of games. I, I did not. I read about that game. I did not see that game. I didn't have access to that game. 
and because uh, I wanted to watch that game. And but the, the, the interesting statistic for me, and maybe he was in foul trouble, but that Gobert was was really a non-factor in that game. I mean, he's twelve and eight. I mean, he's usually you know eighteen, twenty, and twenty. And so I don't know what happened there, and if if uh, the fact that he got in foul trouble or what the circumstances were. But yeah, you know what? That's a team they're likely to play, and it could be a first round game. And so I, I think you definitely have to. I mean, you're not going to worry about it uh, significantly right now because it's not really happening with any other teams. But definitely they're going to have to address some things and watch the film and find out what they can and can't do because that is a team they may have a seven-game series with like they had this year. And so, and you're right. I mean, Denver's had the upper hand. So, yeah, I, think, I, I, mean, I don't think you sit there and – you're so worried about them that you forget about everybody else. But I definitely feel like they're going to play them again and could very well play them in the playoffs. And they've got to have a better answer than they have thus far. So that you know, it's, it's in that game, um, you know, that was the thing that stuck out to me. I thought, man, he was amazing. Well, you know, how did how did Gobert play? And uh, you know what, he, he he didn't have a great game. The numbers don't say that he had a great game, but. You know, Connolly goes for 12, Mitchell goes for 13, O'Neal 12, Clark's 13. I mean, the entire team, nobody really stepped up. So is it all about uh, the big fella at Denver, or is it the fact that, uh, you know, the other guys really didn't step up and play? And like you said, I mean, they won 11 in a row. They go on the road. They're pretty ripe for an upset. <laughs> you know, against the team that struggled mightily to begin the year, and now it seems to be putting things together. So, uh, whether they had an 11 game road trip going on or not, streak going on, uh, it was still going to be a tough to place to play because I, th- I think Denver played more desperate. They played more with a sense of urgency, and uh, it was going to be a tough place to win, no whether he got 47 or not. So college is a little different because you don't play near as many games. But in the pros, you know, you, you probably got a game within 48 hours, so no sense obsessing over it because you got something else to get ready for, especially this year because there's a high amount of games. Like, for instance, in February, Jazz are playing 28 days, playing 14 games, which, I mean, obviously, literally, you're playing every other day. Uh, but in terms of benefiting from a loss, Gobert had said – when they lost to the Knicks uh, three weeks ago, he thought it was good for them because that spurred on their 11-game winning streak. Do you buy that losses have positives that you use for whether it's in the immediate future or as you continue to progress along the season? I think good coaches, and the Jazz have good coaches, anytime there's a loss, you focus more on yourself and what we could or should have done and what we didn't do well enough. And I think any time you go through adversity, it makes you better because there's an attention to detail in the film room. There's an attention to detail in conversations. There's a attention to detail when it refers to accountability. And, you know, maybe it's a situation where the coaching staff comes in and says, you know what, our game plan, we, 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 it, wasn't, it wasn't good enough. You know, and I think when coaches sometimes take the responsibility as well, I mean, there's times that you got to, defer and lay it on the players sometimes they, they need to be know they need to know that you're not playing up to expectations we're better than that but uh, I know as a coach that there were times when I, I came in and I remember our first 
my first NCAA tournament when we played um, Cincinnati. And, you know, it was tied in half. And uh, we had a really good team. And, uh, but I made a mistake. And, and the mistake I made was my guys ran out of gas in that game. And that was because the coaching staff, the players, everybody was so hyped to be in San Diego that night before the game. And we wanted to get everything in. And you know what? They were a little bit tired. And I, even, and I didn't know it at the time. But uh, I, I knew after the game that uh, I had made a mistake as a coach in preparing them. And, I, and, I, and you try to learn from those things. And I think sometimes this is a, there's an effort issues, there's execution issues, there's also preparation issues. And the way that they went about guarding him, did they make adjustments? You know, coaches make mistakes too. It happens. And we, we, you know, despite all the film and all the preparation, uh, something could have probably been done better to guard him and that he doesn't drop you know, almost 50 on him. Uh, and I, I think they'll go back the next time and say, you know what, we're going to take this a little – not that you're going to change your whole defense, but you're going to take maybe take this away or take that away and then continue to do the good job we did on the rest of the guys. So sometimes coaches need to step forward as well, and, and, I, and they do. I mean, great coaches always do that. They, they, they are always sensitive to, hey, listen – as players, our execution level, our effort level, we're playing a lot of games. You know that it's unacceptable. You got to give us more. We got to play. Maybe we got to play more people. Uh, but at the end of the day, when a coach steps up and says, "You know what? Well, we need to rethink our game plan here. We're going to do some things differently." And uh, you know, I'm, I take responsibility. Our staff takes responsibility for that as well. So we're in this together. And I think that always helps. Makes players feel more. I, I think it just feels like players know that. Hey, I got a, we got a coaching staff that's all in and engaged in this, and uh, they want to win as badly as we do. So I think it's a combination of those things. But most of all, winning 11 games and, and playing night after night, you're going to have nights when you don't play great. And that was one of those nights, and give Denver the credit. Steve Cleveland joining us here on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. There are a couple other things that happened over the weekend that uh, caught NBA fans' eyes, and one was Damian Lillard hitting two threes around a jump ball and a trap in the backcourt to, to bail the Blazers out when it looked like they were going to lose in Chicago, You know, down five with ten seconds to go. So I am curious. Now we've all seen Lillard hit these shots and hit him in the regular season, hit him in the playoffs. Everybody knows he's a big-time player. He's certainly undersized for the NBA. He goes sixth in the draft. And you know, Anthony Davis and Bradley Beal went in front of him, which you can, I think you can understand. But yeah. you know, if you pick Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, Deion Waiters, or Thomas Robinson, you're kicking yourself right now. What do players have? You recruited, so you were trying to watch, figure, and it's a different level, high school to college rather than college to pro, but you're still trying to project, like, who's got it? What is the it factor? What does it look like when a player doesn't fully have it so everyone knows, but he does have it to the point that somebody knows? What, it, what is that? How do you put your hands on that? You know what? Uh, so I watched Damon Lillard play in high school in Oakland. You know, I, I was coaching here, and, and I, I – I know that he wasn't really high on a lot of people's radar. Obviously, he, he ends up in a really, really good program in, in Weber State. But that's not typically the path for a guy that's going to go to the NBA and do the special things he's done. So first of all, guys get better. And, and, and I think that's really true with the guy that I had at Paul George, you know, who uh, you know, was, was, a, was a good high school player, but not a great high school player, and really wasn't really recruited. And then 
you know, over time got stronger and developed his game and got more confidence. So I don't, I don't think people at the time, a lot of people go, oh, man, we really missed on Damian Lillard. Well, you know, I remember Damian at the Weber. I mean, he, he, he could really play. And by the time he was a senior, he was more confident. His skill set was different, it was, which was the same thing with Paul. But Paul didn't even ascent like Damian did in college because Damian stayed and played in college where Paul left early. But it, it is a, a situation that it's really sometimes really difficult to tell. I mean, you, you can go in to, uh, to, to a game um, that, and watch games in the summer and you can kind of see that it factor. You can see guys that play at a different speed, and they have different explosiveness, and uh, they they're shot. You know, they shoot it well. They've got, you know, just have a really a sense of who they are. And they don't, again, they don't. They're not in a hurry to do things. They just game comes to them. And uh, and and so with with Damian, I watched him, and he was athletic in high school, and he played hard. He was competitive. You know, and, and if you don't have those things to start with and then the development of talent, you're never going to reach that level in the NBA like, like he has. So you, you do see it. I mean, I watched hundreds and hundreds of games. Uh, and I'm, for, for a loss of mental breakdown here, there's a young man that, that is in that new uh, G League that was one of the three or four players, and he's from Fresno, and I apologize for having a mental lapse here, but... Uh, a six 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 seven kid that played at uh, San Joaquin Memorial High School here in Fresno. My, that name's going to come to me. I'll probably text it to you when we're done talking. But he's in that G League. He's being paid like $500,000, part of that new development deal. And I remember going into a gym when I first got back to California and watching him play. And he's playing against other high school players, and you just immediately knew he's special. You're talking about you, Green? Jalen Green. Yeah, yeah, Jalen Green. Jalen Green, yeah. thank you. And, uh, and, and a great kid. And I remember coming into the gym. This was just a couple years ago. And uh, watching Jalen play. And, of course, when you, when you get a guy like that that has all that hype in high school, guys are out to get him. They're going to do anything they can to make themselves look better. And, <clears throat> and, and Jalen had so much poise as a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old. Now, He'd been on the AAU circuit and played with high-level teams against high-level players. He comes back to Central California where there aren't, there aren't a lot of high-level players, and so the competition. And yet he'd always have two or three guys guarding him, fouling him. And again, just you could see it. He had the it factor. He had the poise. And, you know, he's, he's obviously going to be a pretty good pro when it's all said and done and he gets stronger. But he had it at a really young age. Not everybody has it at a young age. And they develop it. Another young man that I coached for four summers in a row, Bruce Bowen, who would eventually win three NBA championships with the San Antonio Spurs and become almost a 50% three-point shooter when he was playing with them, was I, I coached him four years in high school. And you know what? He was a great kid from Edison High School. I took him every summer to Vegas when I was a high school coach. And, and, and he didn't have it. He, he didn't have it. He wasn't good enough. He eventually, I think, he ended up at Fullerton and then found himself in the D-League at the time and in Europe and hopping around. But eventually figured it out and uh, <clears throat> got a chance to play with the, the Spurs and with you know, a great team, and he had a role and uh, had an incredible NBA career. So there is a different path. You see different paths and different opportunities, but – 
he wasn't one of the it guys, but he still made it and had a nice little niche there with the Spurs. Uh, Jalen Green looks like a guy that has the it factor. Will he have the same success that a Bruce Bowen will have or a Damon Lillard? I don't know, but he's got it. And Damon Lillard really didn't have it in high school. He developed it in college in a great collegiate program at Weber State, and then as a pro became better and better. And so the path is different for everybody, but I, I know what you're talking about. When you go in and see top ten guys, you go, whoa. <laughs> they, they've, got, they've got special talent, and, uh, and they, they, it's kind of like uh, Bill Bradley, one of Bill Bradley. Most, a lot of people aren't going to probably remember Bill Bradley, but I remember reading a book called The Sense of Where You Are. And it was one of my favorite books as a kid. I didn't read many books, trust me. But he was kind of an idol for me. And it was, it was just like he had so much poise, and he was never in a hurry. And, and he, just, he just did great things on the floor at Princeton and obviously in the NBA. That's what these guys, when you have a hit factor, they have a sense of where they are in that moment, can do those special things. But some guys have it early on, some develop it, but you know it when you see it. Well, what I took from that answer is if you end up at Fullerton, you really need to reexamine your life cho- choices and refocus. <laughs> we, uh, I'm telling you right now, there, there's no way when, when I watched him play in high school that you would have ever told me that he was going to play in the NBA. Okay? And he had a heart, and he was tough, and he, was, he turned himself into a great – I mean, he was a good defender in high school. But he, didn't, he wasn't shooting the three-ball. He didn't have the three-ball. He wasn't shooting it like that. And, uh, but he figured it out. And you're right. The guys are folks are scratching their heads, right? Steve, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. All right, buddy. Have a good week. There's Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. When we come back, what is trending the night in the NBA? The games that were played, the big game that wasn't, what that means for the Jazz. And we'll get to all of that coming up. Stay with us.